This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings on the industry you can regularly read over on The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can listen to on Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, he and I are recording this week's show on Sunday, September 17th, 2023. Now, this episode will actually go live on Tuesday, September 19th, which is Ernie Sarbella's 74th birthday. Now, you got to, to interview Mr. Sarbella at that, that Lion King event we did years and years ago, right? Yeah, that was uh, that was a fun event. That was actually when my wife was moving out to California. We met at that event, and I brought her home oh. uh, after that. So yeah, that was uh, that was a lot of fun. It was. It, it was, was a little bit. It was a little bit of a chaotic like. They want you to watch Rivers of Life kind of uh, <laughs> event. But, you know, yeah. we had fun, didn't we, we Jim? Did. We met that lovely um, porcupine at dinner. We did. I think about we often. We did. Yeah. In fact, every so often I will see Disney. You know, evidently he's their go-to animal. Whatever they do press for Animal Kingdom, all right, try to out the porcupine. He's so cute. He was like a kind of, I don't know what he was. He was a... He was a porcupine with a long tail he was, who right. seemingly lives in the jungle, mm -hmm. and he has a big pink nose, and he was so cute. He was, he was. And, and, and uh, let's be honest here, Mr. Sabella is cute himself. Yes. But want to wish this Broadway legend the happiest of birthdays. And speaking of Broadway and beloved Disney voice actors, Gutenberg the Musical began previews at the James Earl Jones Theater this past Friday, September 15th. And that stage show stars Andrew Reynolds and friend of the show, Josh Gad. I heard from a friend who went to the final dress for Gutenberg the Musical that it's funny as hell. They were selling out already, Jim. It, selling out already, it, I saw, yeah. Oh, okay. Damn it. I better get tickets. Officially opens on October 12th, and a limited engagement, 20-week run, ends on January 28th of next year. And if what Mr. Taylor says is true, get your tickets today. By the way, if you can't get down to New York to see a stage show, uh, not to worry, the stage adaptation of DreamWorks Animation's The Prince of Egypt, which, by the way, celebrates its the 25th anniversary of its original theatrical release later this year, December 16th. Anyway, DreamWorks has had a stage version of this Academy Award-winning film. It took home the Oscar for Best Song for, for When You Believe. They've had it in work since 2017, and back in 2020, a full-blown stage production of The Prince of Egypt was staged in London's West End. That version wound up being filmed professionally during its 39-week run at the Dominion Theater, and it's that filmed version of DreamWorks' The Prince of Egypt, the musical, which will be available for viewing in a number of formats this fall. So here's your choice of options, Drew. If you want to see it in the big screen, that's going to happen on October 19th in theaters around the country. Tickets are on sale now. If you want to wait to watch it in the comfort of your own home, Broadway HD will be making The Prince of Egypt, the musical, available for viewing starting on November 15th. 
And if you really, really, really love Prince of Egypt, the musical, you can buy or rent the digital version of the show starting on December 5th. I want to see this, but I have to admit that I liked but did not love the original hand-drawn animated version of Prince of Egypt. I, I kind of felt like it had sort of the same flaws that Disney's Pocahontas had, that it it wanted to be important more than it wanted to be entertaining. What do you remember, Prince of Egypt? Yeah, I, I agree. I, yeah, I haven't seen this movie in a long time. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeously animated. It is. Obviously. Yeah, but even even the attempts at humor, like the Martin Short, Steve Martin song, are just kind of like, Ugh. So funny you bring that up, because I was, I was thinking about mentioning them being in this thing, but I couldn't remember... Did the two of them appearing together in Father of the Bride, that predated Prince of Egypt, right? Yes, Okay, correct. all right. Yeah. So I just wonder if that was the first time they, they paired, which reminds me. Well, weren't they in Three Amigos together? Oh, my God, you're right. Yes, okay. <laughs> Never forget, Jim. Three Amigos. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh, I, I I still remember going to a theater to see that one. You know that that uh, especially since that that was supposed to be the first Sam thing Sam Kennison was supposed to appear in. I guess. Oh really? Yeah. That there's some very interesting stories about Sam was supposed to be part of a magical quest that they went on, which then made it possible for them to save the village. I mean, there was this sort of weird diversion. And I, I just remember there was evidently a bit they shot where Sam sort of played this Mexican bandit that just would not die. I think this was when Sam was in his cup, so to speak, and they just couldn't get what they wanted out of him. And so that part never made it in the movie. But yeah, the, the, the three amigos. I had forgotten about that. Or didn't, you, didn't you know Sam Kinison? in your comedy days? He had come to Boston during the time that I did stand up and we all, but again, you know, Sam's reputation preceded himself. And so he was a a comic that comedians went to watch and were just dazzled by. And I did get to go out with him afterwards, but about a half hour in, I realized I can't keep up with this guy. And, you know, it was just one of these things where it's like, that was the night Jim tried black tar heroin (laughs) for the first time. Uh, Not, Exactly, but but uh, it, that's kind of the neighborhood, and 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 again, I'm I'm, I'm a, a straight laced guy from the suburbs, and it was like I have to go home now. It was pretty pathetic. Okay, anyway, uh, back to Prince of Egypt now. By the way, in honor of the 25th anniversary of the theatrical release of this uh, hand drawn DreamWorks animation film, there's a 4K Ultra HD version uh, that came out. In March 14th of this year. And remember, cultural imperative, you got to buy physical media. So got to seek this out now. Anyway, lots of animation news this week. But as always, uh, before we get to the news, I want to remind you, news portion of today's show is brought to you by Fine Tuning's newest sponsor, which is Turing Plan's own travel agency. So if you're thinking of heading back to the Walt Disney World Resort in the not-so-distant future, these obviously knowledgeable folks can help you plan your dream vacation. They'll even toss in a free copy of a subscription to Turing Plan's. So if you're planning on visiting Central Florida sometime soon, please check them out at turingplans.com backslash travel. And you really should because have you heard about how empty the parks are right now in Florida? Is that 
anecdotal or is that real? Well, I heard I heard from a friend this week. You'll appreciate this, Jim. Okay. I've, I've already texted Len about it. Okay. Is that they were staying mm-hmm. at Yacht Club mm-hmm. for a hundred and fifty dollars a night. Wow. Now they are they are cast members, so there is a little bit of a discount. Okay. But that I've never heard I, Yacht Club that <laughs> cheap. I mean, you can't get into Stormalong Bay for hundred. Oh, no, I was about bucks. to say, I, I don't think they let you into the lobby for less. You know, yeah. It's like shake you down. You have to buy a you know one hundred fifty dollars worth of breath mints. Wow, no, yeah. that's crazy. But yes, let let touring plans find you the best deal okay. because they're they're out there oh, for sure. Wow. Okay. Anyway, previous fine tuning episodes. We have talked about the ongoing writer's strike and the actor's strike. Uh, in fact, Drew and I were just uh, kibitzing prior to getting started here that supposedly the producers and the writers are going to sit down sometime this coming week for another round of negotiations. But I think you were saying, Drew, that even that is slow-moving, laborious. Yes. You have to set your hopes so low. Yeah, and and what I what I understand is that even if they make a deal with the writers, mm-hmm. uh, the writers will not begin work until the actors are taken care of. Oh. So I, I still don't think this will be figured out until next year. Oh. I hope I'm wrong. Oh my god! But okay, yeah. Well, all right. Speaking of labor-related negotiations, that sort of thing. Have we talked previously about the, the recent dust-up between the Walt Disney Company and Charter? No, but I think we should. All right. Well, again, if you're a sports fan who got, got your cable through Spectrum, you you were very aware of this round of negotiations with Disney and Charter because you had to do without ESPN for, what, a week, 10 days? Anyway, the two companies came to an understanding. Charter agreed to make Disney Plus available to Spectrum customers and Evidently, that is the corporate agenda at Disney these days, that this streaming service has to succeed. It is crucial to the future of the mouse. But this additional access on Spectrum uh, came at a cost. Did you see what channels are now no longer offered or Disney-owned channels are no longer offered on Spectrum? Yeah, this is actually really unnerving. (laughs) So let's go back to the Disney Plus of it all. I mean... That is kind of an admission Mm -hmm. from Disney that you are paying for the same service twice and that there is no reason that you should be paying for Disney Plus if you're paying for Mm -hmm. cable. Right. Although the version that you have that you got from Spectrum is the the ad supported tier, Mm -hmm. which I don't think anybody really wants. But yeah, so in the trade off, they axed Disney XD. Mm -hmm. They axed Freeform. Mm -hmm. I think Disney Junior as well. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's a very troubling look at where at least the linear services are going. Oh, you're not wrong. Um, you are not and wrong. what their importance is to the larger Disney company. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that I think that I still get Freeform, mm-hmm. and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I think maybe because I only have the app, mm-hmm. uh, the Spectrum app, mm-hmm. but I will report back to you on that. Um, oh, please. But please, I was, please I, do. I was upset because, you know, like, Freeform's mm-hmm. Halloween programming is such a staple for so many people. Absolutely. Uh, and, it's, Absolutely. and it's about to start and nobody has it anymore. Well, it's like, I, wow. And, and that's the thing. The, the thing that's important to understand here is 20% of cable users in the United States get access to this program through Spectrum. And from a channel point of view, as well as individual shows, this is devastating news. I mean, for example, Archer, which is a, a favorite of mine. Archer had literally started its 
14th and final season on FFX. And uh, first episode aired, and then this Disney dust-up with Charter happens. When the issues resolve, Spectrum came back online without FXX, which means... Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, uh, which means that people who subscribe to the, this rather sizable cable company don't get to see how Archer, the series, ends. Not until they buy the Blu-ray or the DVD in a year or so. Is it not on Hulu, Jim? Well, now that's where it gets interesting, because this is the language that Disney is using to sort of placate the folks at Freeform and Disney XD and Disney Junior and Nat Geo Wild that are freaking out because it's, our channel's going away. It's like, don't worry. Your series is still being, have you heard this phrase, being windowed? People can still find it. It's on Hulu or it's, it's over on Disney+. Plus. I mean, yeah, the, the channel doesn't have the reach it once did in linear broadcasting, but you're still out there. You're still offered on either Hulu or Disney+. Plus. And, and what's also fascinating is you have to have also been following the news in regard to ABC. Yes. Just the whole notion of if what Disney just did to Freeform and XD and Disney Junior, that's tough. But they're not talking about flat out selling you. And yes. Disney has come back and said that these rumors that are making the rounds you know, have no merit. And they, of course, are considering all of their options, but there is no sale imminent. But they have had offers from Nexstar and they have. Byron Allen's company. There I we think. go. There we go. Supposedly. Who I don't know how this guy... Hmm. Who went from repackaging <laughs> junket interviews to now being able to offer ten billion dollars for, for a, I, ABC? But anyway, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that tells you <laughs> what the media landscape is like these days. And for people who work in the field, for people who cover the field, the world's changing very quickly in so many different ways. And for example, I'm, I'm sure you saw the news about the effects artists at Marvel Studios. They they formally vote to unionize and to join the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. But have you heard what what's going on at Wild Brain up in Vancouver? That they're looking to no. they're looking to do the exact same thing. They they've all signed union support cards, and they'll be doing the same thing that the the Marvel you know the visual effects artists did, and with the notion of. If they vote and they unionize, they can then seek better contracts through the use of collective bargaining. And I reached out to a friend at the studio because of the ABC thing. They made the point of looking at the parallels between the start of COVID and what's going on right now with all of these strikes and union votes and that sort of thing. Because when the COVID lockdown happened, the industry had already started marching in the direction of, you know, we're going to make streaming part of our offerings. But everything that happened with streaming, the number of people who adopted it and the shifting of battle plans, that was originally supposed to happen over three to five years. And it all wound up happening because of the pandemic in one year. Just all of this massive change all at once. My friend was sort of making the parallel between Writer's strike, actor's strike, what's going on with the votes for effects artists, what's happening with Disney and Spectrum. This is another seismic event. And in fact, he made a direct connection between 
This is why Iger in that infamous CNBC interview flat out said that the writers and the actors couldn't have picked a worse possible time to go on strike because studios still haven't recovered from what happened with COVID. This is supposedly what Iger was saying very inarticulately. This is another seismic event. And that on the other sides of this, it's going to be interesting to see after the strike and after whatever goes on with Disney in regard to selling off assets and that sort of thing, what, what things look like. Well, are we going to talk about DNEG? Did you see that? Please to fill the folks in on DNEG. Okay, so DNEG, I'm going to speak for Jim mm-hmm. and say one of our favorite visual effects mm-hmm. studios and one of the hardest working. They uh, are based out of London, mm-hmm. but have obviously satellite studios around the world. Mm-hmm. They've done visual effects for everything from my beloved John Carter to Oppenheimer and pretty much every movie in between, uh, including Top Gun Maverick. Mm -hmm. So they are asking their staff to take 25% pay cuts or join a loan scheme if that is too much. And and the example that they gave on deadline was that Mm -hmm taking a pay cut of 50% before immediately being loaned back 40% mm-hmm. payable with no interest over a longer 36-month period. The move will, quote, enable us to maintain the maximum number of jobs through this period. And uh, predictably, they are not, the employees of DNAG are not happy. No, 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 understandable. And it, but face it, there's two things going on here. One, nobody's working because of the actor's strike and the writer's strike. But before that, when you think about the hours and the pay level that people who work in effects were being paid, this was a crisis that was coming. The dominoes were falling. The one thing that kept them going was this constant, here's another big effects element. Here's another big effects element you know, that has an impossible deadline and needs to be out in three weeks. And we need your help. Come work on this project. And it was only when everything stopped where the plate stopped spinning and it's just sort of like we cannot maintain this financial model anymore. And, you know, the idea is you just feel for them because so much of the films we love today, the moments that thrill us where, when we're in theaters are on the backs of these really talented people who deserve to be paid for their efforts. That's just side of a Ponzi scheme. What they're proposing. Yeah. And in terms of animation, they were the ones that did Ron's Gone Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. uh, As well as Nimona. So. And yet the irony of all of this is that the business of show business motors on. I mean, for example, February 2022, Paramount Plus announces they're bringing back Dora the Explorer, this time as a all new CG animated series from Nickelodeon. And this show doesn't begin streaming on Paramount till spring of 2024, but to make sure that this door reboot stays front of mind with target audience, uh, uh, preschoolers, for the next six to eight months, uh, Paramount commissioned the first ever Dora short, which is going to be released theatrically on September 29th, out ahead of the Paw Patrol, the Mighty movie. By the way, this is the second theatrical release based on that popular animated series, which began running on Nickelodeon back over 10 years ago now, Drew, August of 2013. Anyway, 
The short is called Dora and the Fantastical Creatures and deals with the L.A. Breas, who most animation fans were probably introduced to with Pixar's 2017 release, Coco. Remember Dante and Pepita, the colorful cat and dog that were the... I can see her. I can see her right behind you. Yes, yes. Once I found out there was a plush Pepita, had to have her. Okay. Another way you get people excited about an upcoming animated feature is, well... You do what DreamWorks did with the, their latest trailer for Trolls Band Together, a third film in that franchise. First uh, Trolls movie came out in November 2016. So our second trailer for Trolls World Tour leaned heavily into the fact that this animated sequel will feature Better Place, which will be the first new song that NSYNC has performed together in 20 years. So you're willing to lay down some money here. What do you think the chances are when we, we swing around to the Academy Award ceremony in six months, eight months, that A, this song is performed on stage, and B, the aging members of NSYNC show up on stage to sing it? I think the chances are pretty good. I have not seen the whole movie. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing the whole movie sometime this week. Ooh. Okay. But I absolutely adore <laughs> what I've seen from Trolls mm -hmm. Band Together. And I think this is such a cool way to get people excited. I mean, this is a pretty big coup, you no, know? So you're I, not wrong. I'm impressed. You're not wrong. If you want to talk about a very tempting piece of bait to get people back into theaters, this is it. But again, it all comes down to whatever it does that gets you to buy a ticket or to tune in. Which brings us to our final news story of this week. So, first of all, I know you, Drew. You're, you're a huge sports nut. So, obviously... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh, just like me. All right. So, so, obviously, you're right on top of the NFL's international games, which, by the way, have been going on for 10 years now, and I didn't notice. But this is part of the NFL's attempt to broaden the appeal of American football and, and what they've done is for, I guess, 10 years now, the Jacksonville Jaguars have regularly played a real season game over in London. And this coming Sunday, October 1st, the Jaguars will be in Wembley Stadium to take on the Atlanta Falcons. But what's supposed to make this game especially interesting is during the live broadcast of this American football match, an alternate version of this game will be broadcast on Disney Plus and ESPN. And the gimmick of this version of the game is it will be fully animated in real time and will supposedly be coming live from Andy's bedroom. Like Andy from Toy Story. Yes. And did you see who's doing the halftime show? No, no. Duke Kaboom is doing the halftime <laughs> show. No, okay, now, now I have to tune in. Now you're intrigued. Now I'm intrigued. Yeah. Wow, how exactly are they going to pull this off? Well, you know what's interesting is that that Nickelodeon mm -hmm. has been doing this for years, mm -hmm. doing like SpongeBob overlays okay. for some of these games. Right. And yeah, you're right. The whole the whole ploy is to just be like, you know. Got to make a sports fan from from the cradle to the grave. And yeah, the animation that they showed off in the teaser looks pretty sophisticated. Mm -hmm. I don't think Pixar is doing it, obviously, but it does look really pretty good. So uh, I, I yeah, I don't know how they must be. They must be computing the 
players in real time and spitting them out as these kind of toy-ish avatars? I don't know. I am more fascinated by the pop the hood on this. How exactly are you going to do this? On the other hand, you know, I mean, the Duke, Duke Kaboom thing, I mean, oh, as a halftime show, that's inspired. I mean, that is right on brand. That's brilliant. Holy cow. It, it's interesting where, where the Toy Story franchise is mm-hmm. now and how they're going to swing back around to Toy Story 5. Yeah. Um, I don't, I just don't know how they're going to do it, Jim, but I'm sure they're. They're working hard on the answer. I've heard some rumors, which I will not share, because frankly, I don't know how they would, in fact, pull that story off. And more to the point, I kind of assume at this point, even Pixar isn't entirely sure what Toy Story 5 is about. Well, the rumors that they're both going to be back Mm -hmm. and that it's going to involve Andy somehow is very interesting. That's... The, the root, but it it's the frame I've been hearing about that's like, I don't know about that one. But again, maybe at some point in the future we'll talk about that, folks. But Time travel. <laughs> no. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that's right. Andy gets a DeLorean. Okay. Anyway, uh, speaking of more stuff later, uh, coming in the second half of the show, uh, we were just talking about October, scary season, and thought we might talk about stuff that got deleted from animated features. But first, this... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A few shows back, we talked about the untimely passing of Arlene Sorkin, who is the voice, not to mention a big inspiration for the original version of Harley Quinn on Batman the Animated Series. Uh, Well, Harley the character lives on. The adult animated black comedy based on this character, which was called, surprise, surprise, Harley Quinn, just wrapped its fourth season on Max this past week on September 14th, to be exact. And no word yet on a fifth season of the show, but Harley Quinn is getting a spinoff, Kite Man, Hell Yeah, which Warner Brothers Animation is producing and expects to have debut on Max sometime in 2024. Looks so good. Looks so good. I have to admit that the, the notion of running the bar just down the street from the Legion of Doom... And and having Darkseed and, and Lex Luthor drop in for a drink every now and then, it's like, okay, that's a funny premise. It looks better than the Frasier reboot, Jim, uh, I will say that. Yeah, I, I don't want to try to judge something on, what, a two-minute long trailer? But, yeah, that doesn't look all that good. And I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if... if David Hyde Pierce knew something that the rest of us <laughs> did. If he doesn't go to Cheers at least once, <sighs> I mean, what is the point of putting him back in Boston? It's so bizarre. Anyway. You, you were not wrong. That's for our spinoff podcast, which is called <laughs> there we go. Frasier Tuning. There we go. Yes. There we go. All right. So, uh, again, Scary Season is coming up. And over on Hulu and Peacock, less than two weeks from now, they've got Freight 
Crew debuting. It's an, an animated horror series aimed at older kids uh, debuting on October 2nd. Joanna Lewis and Kristen Sonko, who were uh, co-executive producers at Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous, which actually did a pretty good job when it came to the scarier side of the street, are members, I agree. Uh, members of the writing team on this new series. And Digitoons, the Delhi-based studio that handles animation on Rick and Morty, Solar Opposites, and Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, doing this animation on the series as well. Got an interesting logline that the premise of Fight Crew is that an ancient prophecy and a voodoo queen put misfit teens in charge of saving New Orleans from the biggest demonic threat it's faced in almost two centuries. We're not going to go into the, the teenage friendship aspect of the show. I just like the premise of them fighting demons in New Orleans. It's the only show, Jim, that is co-executive produced by Eli Roth, director of Hostel, yeah. and James Frey, charlatan behind A Million Little Things, or whatever the hell that book was called. Yeah. yeah. You notice how I didn't mention any of the... <laughs> <laughs> that's what makes the show interesting yeah that, that was deliberate on my part and yeah i w- it was trying to do right by joanna and kirsten but okay anyway all right speaking of scary stuff and again drew and i, I are shamelessly trying to score tickets to this year's oogie boogie bash because we again we want to see judge doom dip a clown shoe it's disturbing it's really well done you know the, the whole thing though i would argue that judge doom's death in the original Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the screaming and writhing as he, he melts into a pool of dip after battling Eddie Valiant in the Acme Warehouse, I would argue that was more disturbing than the clown shoe being melted. Yes, and that was also dramatized in the behind-the-scenes area of Disney MGM Studios for years. I have some great pictures of me standing next to that dip machine. Oh, Do you remember that whole thing in the back lot, Jim? Right. Yeah. 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 Well, again, you know, they had just come when the studio opened in 89, Roger had come out the summer of 88 and Disney hadn't had, had a hit of that size, especially animation in years. And they just took that and ran with it. I remember how, when you got off the, the tram you actually followed Roger's footprints into like yep. the, the commissary food court area. I mean, Roger, yep. Roger was everywhere. Yeah. It was the second highest grossing movie of 1988 mm-hmm. behind a movie that Disney had and put into turnaround, and that was Rain Man. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What Levinson did with that was it? Such a great movie. Great movie. Great movie. But. And I think we've talked previously, you know, about how wasn't there at one point a line in the script to the effect of Judge Doom was supposedly the guy who shot Bambi's mother? Yep. Okay. (laughs) I bring this up because if you today hop on Google and type in Bambi's mother and uh, storyboards... This is the actual boards that were created for the scene that they did not animate of Bambi's mom getting shot, turn up. In fact, what's fascinating about them, and again, I I can't say this definitively, but if you look at the art style, it's like, oh, dear Lord, is that Tyrus Wong? Did Tyrus Wong actually draw Bambi's mom leaping over a log, getting nailed, and then falling over dead in the snow? But... There's two reasons why this actual scene never got animated and put into 
again, this 1942 release from Disney. You know, one is that Walt was a great editor and sort of looked at that and it's like, you know, I don't think we need to see this. I think we can basically hear it off camera and it will be just as effective. But equally uh, important to why this didn't wind up in Bambi is they were out of money. Bank of America at that point, you know, uh, Disney had gone public like a year and a half, two years before this. And Fantasia had lost money. Pinocchio had lost money. And Bank of America basically told Walt, that's it. No more. You finish whatever is closest to being done. But, you know, you can't do Alice. You can't do Peter Pan. You know, they were all ready to roll at that point. And so, and even Bambi was just the whole notion of, we have some scenes we'd like to do. You don't have any money. You can't do them. Send it out the door the way it is. Just four years earlier, Disney was making more money than God off of Snow White. That's what funded the construction of the studio. That's what initially funded Pinocchio, Fantasia, and everything else that was in the works. And during your time at Oh My Disney, when you were in the building, did you ever get to see any of the, the stuff that was cut from Snow White and and no I'm 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 not talking like the soup eating scene and the the bed making scene but but the scary stuff No I mean I did go to the animation research library uh, once cool. for a press day for Pinocchio All right. which I wrote about for Vulture which is a great story that we should we should link out to Sure sure the show notes mm-hmm. but it was a really interesting experience because you know the disney vault is obviously a marketing term Mm -hmm. but going into this building you realize oh no the disney vault is actually real it's this place across the street from the office where i used to work every day Mm -hmm. which is not a publicly disclosed location because that it's so valuable (laughs) but it's in it's in glendale it's in one of those anonymous buildings i believe it is is it the building where they were making like movies in the late 80s early 90s I have been trying to chase down the D location. I want to say Rodeir, R-O-D-I-E-R. In, in fact, supposedly Circle 7, the KABC thing, is now located where that was supposed to be, which confuses me because wasn't Circle 7? That doesn't make sense. You know, but, see, that's a yeah. thing. All right, Circle 7 was also where the Disney Pixar films were supposed to be made. Yes. So, again, I, I feel like, I, and, and what's further complicating the issue is, remember, DreamWorks built its campus basically across the street from Imagineering. In fact, I, there used to be a joke that folks, that, and again, that, without giving away the, the approximate location of the RL, but the, I think DreamWorks had had one or two films that hadn't performed particularly well at the box office. And it's like, well, don't worry about it. We'll just tunnel under the street here and go over and start stealing stuff out of the ARL and sell it online. (laughs) You know, just like, we'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, what's amazing, too, is how many physical props are Absolutely. Absolutely. But when, Um, when you were there for the Pinocchio press day, did they walk you through at all the, the Project Diamonds? Evidently, it's this multi-decade project. Yes, the digita- the digitization. There we go. Yes. There we go. And so there are people. Mm-hmm. What Jim is referring. There are people who are just doing this mm-hmm. all day. Yep. I mean, I could not. I cannot imagine mm-hmm. what this is like. But they are literally digitizing every layer of every mm-hmm. piece of artwork so that the coffee cup mm-hmm. stain on the Bambi 
you know, rough mm-hmm. is is being maintained and that you can actually go through step by step, see every layer, yep. see every frame of animation. Mm-hmm. They are digitizing maquettes from the different movies. They are digitizing puppets from things like uh, Corpse, uh, not Corpse Bread, but Frankenweenie mm-hmm. and uh, those projects. I mean, it is an astounding project. I wish that they would kind of open the gates a little bit. It's only internal. You have to go through a a uh, request process, which I had used to have to do mm-hmm. at Disney mm-hmm. to get some of the stuff. But it is really when it's done. I mean, it's not going to be done for 50 years or something. But, you know, the part of the conversation that fascinated me was they were identifying like, OK, obviously we'll start with like the crown jewels. We'll do Snow White. We'll do Pinocchio. And then it was sort of a triage situation that which other films from the 40s and 50s do we really need to leap on? But it's each individual paper, you know, and and with the idea that at some point in the future, you know, there'll be a Disney animator seated sitting at their desk going, oh, man, you know, having trouble with the scene. If I could only look at, you know, that scene from Alice that would say, hey, wait a minute, I can. And leap on their laptop and enter the secret code. And, you know, they can then, like a flip book, page through this. So they can yes. look at, yep. you know, I mean, it just, it's a fascinating thing, project they've got in the work. But yeah, but yeah, it's like 8K oh. Or something oh. quality. I mean, it is it is astounding. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you think about twenty four frames a second, and what this is going to take to get all mm-hmm. you know digitized. But it, it's amazing. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it's a astounding building if you ever get a chance to to visit. Well, now um, I, but, I, again, yeah. I was going to spend some of our time today talking about the infamous 34 seconds that got cut out of Snow White. That this is supposedly why. It was in when the film played at Radio City, but, you know, and that starts in mid-January. But by the time the film goes into general release, February 8th of that same year, this 34 seconds is gone. And that's supposedly on the back of the general manager at Radio City calling Walt and basically saying, the kids are peeing in the seats. And, you know, we have to replace a lot of chairs because kids are peeing. I mean, it, remember, it's a, it's a theater with... 5,960 seats. So, you know, that's a lot of pee. And so the notion is, all right, I'll take out this 34 seconds. So that way theaters around the country won't have to deal with the same issue that Radio City has. What what, what was in the 34 seconds? It's the, the queen as the old hag over her cauldron. Evidently, the script at this point is making no bones about the fact that I am going to poison and kill the cute little princess. And, you know, she puts the whatever the, the thing is and then like skeletons form out of or, or to me, skulls float up out of the uh, the cauldron. Yes. OK. All right. Yes. All right. And it just evidently that was enough to send little kids over the edge. So on the other hand, the black cauldron. There we go. Uh, how much do you know about this story? Because I actually got this told to me by Mike Peraza. Okay. Okay. And, and again, he actually worked on this movie and w- was evidently very close to Joe Hale, the producer of The Black Cauldron. So the providence on, on this story is pretty good. That basically Katzenberg comes through the door in the fall of 84, takes over as the head of Disney Studios. 
they had already cut a deal with Radio City Music Hall. They were going to do a summer-long Disney presentation. It was going to start with Return to Oz, and then in mid-July, it was going to pivot to the Black Cauldron. And so Jeffrey is now looking at the original cut of the Black Cauldron. And it's too dark. It's too scary. It's it's confusing. And, and this is the story that, as it was told to me by Mike, that when Katzenberg first screened the film, he told Joe Hale, again, the producer of The Black Cauldron, that they had to cut 10 minutes out of the movie. And so Joe and, and Roy E. Disney get together and they find some scenes they could get rid of that didn't impact the film all that much. And so they then screen the recut version of Cauldron for Jeffrey and the lights come up and Katzenberg turns to Walt's nephew and says, that was really 10 minutes worth of cuts. And Roy's like, well, uh, to be honest, no, it was six minutes. And Katzenberg gets irate and said, I want it 10 minutes cut out of this thing. So now Jeffrey personally takes over the trimming of Cauldron and he found another six minutes to cut out of the film that he felt, okay, we can tighten it up and this won't damage the movie. And Jeffrey was wrong. Though now 12 minutes worth of cuts severely damaged the Black Cauldron, it made the story incoherent, made the characters unsympathetic. And the Black Cauldron, the movie that went out in the theaters, never recovered. It bombs at the box office summer of 85. And I'd hear Mike talk, Disney might have well, might as well have taken the $44 million that they spent in 1980s money and flushed it down the toilet. And again, this next generation of Disney animators, you know, when they were working on the Black Cauldron, if you read about it in the two, two and three years before it opens, they talk about how this is our Snow White. You know, this is the, the, the big, impressive, ambitious feature. And But Mike told me, and he supposedly got the story from Roy E. Disney himself, that the master negative for the original uncut version of the Black Cauldron still exists in the Disney vault. That evidently all of the cuts that were made and, you know, and would then incorporate to the theatrical release were made to what he called the inner negative. Have you ever heard that term? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what ended up saving Muppet Christmas Carol. Really? As well. Okay. Yeah, is that they had found a master wow. copy okay. before the inter, the intermediary or the intercut mm-hmm. had been struck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I believe it. But realistically... Okay, this is the modern Disney company. More to the point, this is the modern Disney company with something like Disney Plus, which, you know, just for example, just in the past week, we got the news that Werewolf by Night, that holiday special that Marvel Studios put out last Halloween, is being redone for this Halloween season, only a color version that sort of pays tribute to like the Hammer horror films. Who wants that, first of all? I mean... (laughs) Wasn't the black and white one of the major selling points of that original it, it and was. one of the reasons why it was so fun to watch? I don't know. It was. Just, it was. You know. No, no, no. I mean, you're not wrong. Um, but at the same time, if a Disney company is actually sitting on the uncut version of The Black Cauldron with 12 more minutes of footage, which but again, admittedly, supposedly really scary, dark 
footage. I mean, a lot of the supposedly the stuff with the cauldron born and things rising up out of the cauldron and killing other people in the room and that sort of thing. I mean, this was a lot of axes, a lot of axes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But wouldn't a modern Disney company have pulled this out already and and made it available? Well, think about how much is not on Disney Plus Uh, is what I want to point to. Interesting point. That even if that Mm -hmm. footage exists, what it would take to clean up, Mm -hmm. to scan, to digitize. I mean, I just don't think that unless they put out some merchandise and it sells like wildfire, Mm -hmm. you know, as a test run or, you know, something. I mean, I would be I would love to see this footage. I think that I really like Black Cauldron, Mm -hmm. but I I cannot think of a more doomed production (laughs) in maybe the history of Disney. I mean, and I've talked to Andreas Mm -hmm. and Don and all of these people about that. I mean... Yeah, it, it was an absolutely runaway production. You know, the Don Bluth exit happened during production. I am so glad you brought that up because our next story is is, is a Don Bluth-related film that, that also got cut to pieces. Uh, the Yes, I know what you're referring to. Should we just jump Let's right in? Let's go. Let's jump right in. Land before okay. time. And now, my problem is I've heard two versions of this story. That one, it was George Lucas who had the concerns about the footage with Sharptooth. And, and, but just today, I came across a number of stories that suggest it was Spielberg. And he was the one with the young son, Max, who was like, oh, I don't know, this is scary stuff. But I thought you were going to talk about the all, the all Dogs Go to Heaven Hell stuff, <laughs> which is also cut, was also cut out. It, it was, time. it was. But the interesting thing is that we got one sequel to uh, all dogs go to, to heaven and maybe maybe an animated series i forget whereas think about it land before time there are 14 sequels and a series but nothing nothing beats that original what's weird is that this is what's kind of fascinating about it if you hammer on cutscenes, land before time there are if you do the same thing for black cauldron people can mostly point to individual cells or, or stuff that was in the trailer, but it's it's really fleeting, whereas there's a surprising amount of Land Before Time stuff out there. And I think what's especially kind of intriguing is, think about it, if, if it's this is true, if Spielberg is the one who spends six months cutting, you know, removing the really scary stuff from Land Before Time, and, and supposedly it, it actually outdid the 12 minutes that were cut out of Black Cauldron, that supposedly 13 13 minutes. They they reduced the running time of the film from 82 minutes to 69 minutes, which, by the way, just five minutes longer than Dumbo, which is supposedly the shortest full-length feature Disney ever did. But then, uh, think about it. You you jump ahead five years, summer of 93. Now, Steven Spielberg has no problem at all making a scary dinosaur movie. And, And we get... The, the movie version of Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. And how many sequels have we had to that? Plus Syria. We were just talking about Camp Cretaceous. Yeah. And the stuff that's been done for the theme park. In fact, I keep waiting for them to take the wonderful update they did of the Jurassic Park ride that they did in Universal Hollywood and bring that to Florida. It's so much better than the, 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 the version of the attraction that's yeah. limping along there now. Do you think those 13 minutes were the difference between 15 sequels and... Uh... See, 
Do you remember the marketing, the merchandising push that Christmas for Land Before Time? I remember begging my mom to go to JC for those little plush. And I think that I think uh, Pizza Head had these like puppets. They, they were there like, there we go, yeah. there we go. In fact, it, 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 it's so funny you say that because Sears had all of the Oliver and Company stuff, where JC Penney yes. had Land Before Time, and I want to say Pizza Hut had Land Before Time. So. Yeah, because remember, it was McDonald's actually sold the Oliver and Company Christmas ornaments. I mean, it was just... <laughs> oh, yeah, those are great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think you, you've nailed it in one. The fact that there were 14 sequels to this, and it's hard to argue that Spielberg's instincts were wrong, that he crafted a film that, you know, and in fact, remember, it, 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 Land Before Time actually came out on top in the box office, in the battle against Oliver and Company. Mind you, I think they were only like, you know, $500,000 apart in ticket sales. I want to said one sold $39 million worth of tickets in North America, while the other one sold maybe 39.5. But they still had the bragging rights. They had beaten Disney. But at the same time, I mean, Don Bluth, as a guy who grew up watching things like Bambi or, or for that matter, you know, catching the Wizard of Oz every year when it you know, ran on television and watching the Wicked Witch melt. He, he wanted to scare kids. He knew that it was it was memorable. And it was just I think it was a, a point of frustration that these things kept getting taken out of his movies, as you mentioned, with the with the hell scene that get that got cut out of All Dogs Go to Heaven. I still think that Don Bluth, you know, in spite of the fact that I really disliked his biography last year, I, I you know, memoir. It was terrible. I wanted it to be better because I really think he's important when it comes to what happened in animation in the 80s and the 90s. That, that I don't think Disney would have done what it did if they didn't feel a Don Bluth breathing down their neck. So do, do you have a, a you know, a, and I guess I'm, I'm going to put this out there for you as well as our listeners. Do you have a, a favorite Don Bluth film from this period? And if so, what? Well, I mean, he was he was just making such beautiful, mm -hmm. such idiosyncratic mm -hmm. movies. I mean, I think that Land Before Time, Secret of Nim, mm -hmm. All Dogs Go to Heaven, An American Tale. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are those are tough to beat mm -hmm. from that period. Mm -hmm. And. You know, one of the there's so many interesting things about what he was doing at the time, too. I mean, you know, relocating to Ireland yeah. while making a movie about the immigrant American story yeah. is really interesting. Mm -hmm. None of which is covered in very much detail in his book. Although if you want to hear about him having to share a bathtub with his eight brothers and sisters, there is that. Yeah. Fun anecdote. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think maybe Secret of Nim is my favorite just as a pure expression, artistic expression it's just one of the most beautiful, tactile, animated movies I think I've ever seen. And and certainly does not... No one was telling him to cut anything scary no, out of that one, I'll say no. that. No, And in fact, I, I think you nailed it in one. I mean, I, I would argue he had so much to prove at that moment. And there's so many just flat-out ballsy scenes in that movie that were so... When you, you can think about the animation... That was being done, you know, in the in the early eighties or thereabouts, and where, you know, for example, Disney with the Fox and the Hound, where they they couldn't bring themselves to kill Chief, 
I forget which of the animators I was talking with who was, you know, argue with the director. He got hit in the face with a train. <laughs> you know, you, you don't come back from that. And it's like, no, no, no. He, he fell off the thing and he, he landed in the river and he's going to limp, but he's fine. We, we can't kill a dog in a Disney film. And it's like, have you ever heard of the movie Old Yeller? You know, it's just sort of like when you think yeah. think about what they do in Secret of Dim, when they just the whole thing of the house sinking in the ground and the children almost drowning in mud. Yeah, oh, no, killer, killer, killer. Well, and it was it was a great example too of what would have happened if the nine old men hadn't overstayed their welcome uh, at Disney. I know. Because I found press clippings from that period where they're they're doubting mm. the Black Cauldron ever making it mm. out of you know, production because it was such a long it was. labored production. And it was like Don Bluth showed, oh, wait, the younger animators can make a movie and it be really artistically mm. and creatively and financially successful. Yeah. Whereas all those movies from that period were just were just mired in this push and pull between the, the remaining animators from Walt's day mm. and these new up and coming animators like Ron and John yeah. and Andreas yeah. and Tim Burton yeah. and all these people. Yeah. And if they had just been allowed to do their thing without these old farts coming at them, it would have been a very different experience, I think. The irony of this is it's kind of like what's going on at Pixar nowadays. That yeah. who tells you, you know, it walks up to you quietly and it's like, you know, you're an old fart now, right? That's when they say, oh, there's a lovely... Um, Brazilian TV commercial featuring Toy Story characters. What if you go work on that for a little while or whatever, you know? There's the old show business adage that one of the biggest skills, the greatest skills to have is knowing when to get off. Yeah. And just knowing when to make an exit and, you know, always leave them wanting more. And on the other hand, you look at Disney where, you know, the whole notion of we have our nine old men. We revere these old gentlemen who know, you know, uh, you know, have learned the techniques directly from Walt, and we want to stay in the building as long as we they can, and just what happened because of that. Well, I think what's what's amazing about this current version of Disney Animation is how well they do utilize those kind of you know legacy players. I mean, the fact that Bernie was there for so long, this is true, and always contributing something really helpful. Mm -hmm. Our BFFs, Mark Henn mm -hmm. and Eric Goldberg yep. are still there and always leading the charge and bringing back old techniques or utilizing that institutional knowledge. It's a very different version than this super combative mm -hmm. kind of like us versus them mentality that happened in the 70s and 80s. And I don't really know what, what that was about. I think you're right. I think it was like that kind of lionization of the nine old men mm -hmm. that was just like. They're the Mount Rushmore of animators, mm. but well, it's really interesting, and I think it really speaks to the leadership of the current mm. studio that it works so well now. Though that said, I worry that in a way the needle's been buried in the other direction. There was because of the piecemeal nature of the way animation is done today. The effect of you know you're handed an individual scene and CG and you know that sort of thing. It's hard unless you're actually in the building. And Disney doesn't do this anymore. You know, you know who's producing the film. You know who's directing the film. But when it comes to who does which individual scenes, I mean, I, 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 I won't lie to you, Drew. One of the reasons that I know, for example, 
Hiram Osmond, you know, who does all it did all right. all of those amazing Olaf shorts and and that sort of thing. The only reason I know what Hiram has done is he's actually really good at social media. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I would argue if you want to really see, you know, a, a great animator at work, go over and look at Hiram Osmond's Twitter feed. And, you know, and and it, what's nice about Hiram is he's actually sharing his knowledge with the next generation of animators on social media. Yes, well, and those the eighties and nineties too is when we we knew everybody's name. Yep. It was such an interesting, it was. and it was partially because Jeffrey was so good at PR. Yep. But yeah. it was really amazing mm-hmm. that we knew. It. Like, why did I know mm-hmm. as a ten year old kid mm-hmm. who Glenn Keane was? Did... There's no reason, but it it was just a beautiful celebration of all of those mm-hmm. people. And again, I just wish that for the young animators who are coming up who who want to emulate their favorite artists and that sort of thing. Maybe it's time to start sharing names and what people do again. Cause it's just sort of like, don't get me wrong. I know like, you know, uh, the directors and the producers do yeoman's work as well, but yeah, no little kid, you know, lies in bed at night. Oh, I want to be a producer of an animated teacher. <laughs> you know, I, right. I want to show up exhausted at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, I want to look exactly like Peter Del Vecchio. <laughs> you know, in that, yes. in, you know, into the unknown. You know, the the, the making of Frozen Two. I have n- honestly never seen a human being that tired in my entire life. I just ran into him recently, Jim. Did you? Oh. Wish he's losing sleep over Wish too, oh. Jim. So don't worry about that. Yeah. Oh, poor Peter. He's a great guy. Okay, anyway, folks. So speaking of a great guy, I do a podcast with a great guy. I, I, Drew Taylor, who has, does a, a podcast with another great guy, Charles Hood, a YouTube host, the Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. So, And you mentioned that there was some stuff that still had to get studio approval. And are, are we at that yeah, point now? Well, I mean, at this yeah, I mean, we the, the the digital release date is now available for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part there 1, as well as the mm-hmm. Blu-ray and 4K release, which will be out on mm-hmm. Halloween, actually. So, wow! You know, there's, a big, there's a big history of masks in the Mission Impossible well, franchise, so why shouldn't it come out on Halloween? That's good. That, you know? All right, that's clever. That's so, clever. Okay. Yeah, we've got a bunch of great new episodes coming mm-hmm. out, and yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and again... What about you, Jim? Well, you know, we have... Our usual podcast here, we have Disney Dish that I do with Len Testa. We have Marvelous Disney, which I do with Aaron Adams, who, by the way, uh, has his own site outside show, 32nd Street, about Madison Avenue. That's worth checking out. Brian Gaughan and I will be getting a new Looking at Lucasfilm going shortly. Though, to be honest, we kind of face down in the ditch working on Disney Unpacked, which is Len and my very first video show. Uh, we've... Uh, you know, we've, we've partnered with Jim Shul, longtime Imagineers, made a lot of your favorite attractions around the globe. And uh, just this afternoon, got to see the latest cut of the first episode. And this great weight just came off of my shoulders. I was like, oh, my God, it doesn't suck anymore. It's like, yay! <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I, I, send, me the, send me that episode, Jim. Go. Let me take a All look. right, I will. I will. Uh, let's see. What else? Um tell you what folks if you could do Dreo and I a favor if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review well not just this show the one you're listening to right now fine tuning but also like the fuse the official Mission Impossible podcast 
And, and if you really, really, really like what you heard today, you want to go and subscribe to Bandcamp, that would be helpful. Uh, social media-wise, I still see you on Twitter. I mean, X. Or- yeah, I'm still on Twitter, whatever. Okay. It's Drew Tailored mm-hmm. on Instagram, Twitter, mm-hmm. Blue Sky, and Threads, although Blue Sky and Threads I'm not very active on. Mm-hmm. And Jim, you are Jim Hill Media? I am. I am still on Twitter, on Instagram, also on Facebook is Jim Hill Media News, and I think that's going to do it for this week, though, folks. So on behalf of Mr. Taylor, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon.